Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Talia Markajani, and I am recording to you. Well, I'm recording live, but you're listening to this recording. Um, and I am recording to you from the Good, Good Mood podcast. I thought I would talk about something that I feel like I, I constantly talk about, but that I don't think is common enough knowledge, and that is the real root cause of depression. So you've heard the classic narrative that depression is this brain imbalance, a deficiency in a hormone called serotonin or sort of like our happy hormone that needs to be corrected with medication. And, and my patients have been told things like, you need to be on this medication for life. It is like eyeglasses for the nearsighted or insulin for diabetes. This is a medication that is correcting this inborn imbalance you have in your brain that we know is a deficiency in serotonin. Your brain doesn't make or, or properly recycle serotonin. You don't have enough serotonin in your brain and therefore you need to be on Prozac or Ciprolex or maybe an SNRI like venlafaxine, Effexor. So one thing that's really important to share is that even, uh, so this is, this is information that, you know, or, or something from like 30 years ago. So if this is a narrative that your doctor is sharing with you, it may just be an easy way for them to convey something more complicated to you. Maybe they say, oh, maybe it's like, it's like a metaphor. I don't really mean you have a brain imbalance. But one thing you should know is that this is not literal at all, and it's not even remotely correct. Numerous studies have been done trying to prove this brain imbalance, which what we call the monoamine hypothesis, where your this this imbalance in serotonin in the brain. And one thing about science is you never prove something in science; you always disprove something. And so this this theory has been disproven countless times, and there's absolutely no evidence at all for this brain imbalance theory. Now, I know that a lot of people connect to this brain imbalance theory, this, this chemical deficiency model of depression. And that's because we're trying to get away from the even older narrative that depression is sort of somehow your fault and you need to kind of snap out of it or whatever that was. This better narrative that, okay, there's something medically wrong or physically wrong resulting in these symptoms and these behaviors. Therefore, it's not my fault. There's potentially a treatment for it, which gives us tons of hope. And there's there's something maybe I can do about it, but it, it somehow legitimizes how we feel and validates us. And that's really important. So when I'm proposing a new theory, I want us to think about the fact that we don't need to let go of that sense of validation and that sense of legitimization we actually are moving further along that path. Yes, your symptoms are real and valid. And yes, there are potential solutions, but these solutions aren't so simple. And this process of diagnosis and really understanding what's wrong, explaining why you feel the way you do is not so clear. And that's just the truth. Um, but there is one major theory for what causes depression. The problem is finding out what causes what causes depression, which we will talk about. I'm also going to read an article about this phenomenon called inflammation that, that we'll discuss as well. But I, I want to say something else. So 
when we're talking about, you know, the stigma around mental health conditions. So it's actually this bio, this biological, this sort of serotonin, this monoamine, a monoamine hypothesis of depression actually has served to be more disempowering, maybe not as disempowering as this narrative of, you know, just kind of snap out of it, whatever, like it's not real. It's all in your head, whatever. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's more empowering maybe than that narrative, but it's still a quite a disempowering narrative. And some studies are showing that people who are, you know, have that narrative are stigmatized because it's this medicalized condition now reliant on medication. If the medication doesn't solve your problem, maybe it helps your problem, but if it doesn't solve your problem, what, what then, what do you do then now? You, and, and this also, this idea of being stuck with a label, is problematic. And we're seeing that. So we know that Gen Z, which is the generation, I guess, before me, people in their twenties and teens right now, people born after, I think 2000, this Gen Z is the most medicated generation in history with the most mental health conditions, depression, anxiety, et cetera. And getting a label, especially early on in your life, has been shown to reduce your life expectancy by something like 20 to 25 years. And the it's possibly this telomere shortening. Telomeres are the ends of our DNA strands, kind of like the ends of your shoelaces that kind of cap and prevent the DNA from getting damaged or fraying. And they shorten with stress. So a label, this stigma, which are monoamine hypothesis, one, you know, underlying imbalance medication um, model is not working to end this stigma. It's further perpetuating it. And so we've got to start to actually ask why, why do people experience depression? What factors come together to create the symptoms that we call depression? Do does everybody with the symptoms of depression have the same thing going on under the surface, kind of like an iceberg? If you have 10 people who deal with depression, depression or depressive symptoms, are these people, do they all have the same thing going on? Do they have 10 different stories, 10 different um biochemical phenomena happening, 10 different, you know, different genes, you know, or obviously more than 10 different genes, but 10 different genetic um, patterns that are manifesting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So where does depression come from? If it doesn't come from this lack of serotonin, or if that lack of serotonin is only partially true, this neurotransmitter model, right? Because our neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, acetylcholine, which no one ever talks about, histamine, interestingly enough, glutamate and GABA, these neurotransmitters are responsible for our mood, for our cognitive function. They, they, they're sort of like the cars on the highways of our, of our brain cells. So our neuronal tracks and neuronal pathways. The problem is it, our brains are very complicated. And although we say things like serotonin is our happiness hormone and dopamine is our motivation chemical, we can't simplify the actions of these chemicals down to that simple narrative, unfortunately. Almost every single neuron in the brain has a serotonin transporter and is activated in some way by serotonin. So we just don't understand the, the exact role serotonin has to play in our brain. We also know that our hormones, estrogen, progesterone, also insulin, 
cortisol, our thyroid hormones, they all interact, testosterone, they all interact with our brain chemistry. We have microglial cells. So this is a new, this is um, psychoneuroimmunology, the connection between our, our immune system. So these are like immune brain cells. Our immune system and our brain and our psychology is connected. And so that brings us to if, 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 if uh, a deficiency in neurochemicals is not what causes depression or anxiety or any other mental health condition, what does? So one of the things that is consistent across the board in the brains of people with depression is inflammation. The preponderance of evidence points to inflammation as the, the source or the cause of depressive symptoms. So we're going to talk, I'm going to read you an article about inflammation. We're going to talk about inflammation. And we have a lot of studies showing that you can induce in, in depression in people by giving them drugs like interferon, which increases inflammation. It's a, it's a, um, an antiviral drug and, and, and it will increase inflammation, cause depression in people. You can inject li lipopolysaccharide into rats or into humans. This is a, um, a, a, an endotoxin. So a toxic substance released by gram negative bacteria in the gut that can, that causes inflammation, causes depression. There's high in, uh, inflammatory cytokines like TNF alpha and IL-6 in people with depression. And this shows an abnormal signaling of the immune system triggering inflammation in the brain. So let's talk about inflammation for a second. So I want to tell you about an experience where I, I was feeling really inflamed and maybe this will highlight, maybe you'll connect with this story and you'll understand, you know, you'll remember a time when you felt inflamed and you'll sort of understand more on the ground, what inflammation is like. Because I think that when I speak about inflammation with my patients, it may come off as abstract. It's not until we can connect it down to our specific symptoms and our specific story that we start to really understand, oh, this is inflammation. It's taken me many years. I've talked about inflammation over and over and over again, right? This is a very important part of our body's healing process, but also a very common cause of chronic disease. It's an underlying chronic disease state, right? It's involved in various chronic diseases from, so anything that ends in itis is inflammatory, right? So arthritis, hepatitis, um, you know, and, and also mental health conditions. So one day I was driving and it was like day one of my period. And I also had, it was like week six of having broken my foot. And the weather was also really like that overcast, thick, humid, rainy weather. And everything just felt super heavy and thick. And like I would take off my socks and there'd be an imprint and indentation on my skin. My ankles were swollen. My, my face felt swollen. I could almost feel my lymph nodes under my, um, under my chin. My foot was super swollen. It looked like somebody poured water into a Vibram shoe. <laughs> it's just like this big, you know, like when you um, pour water into a latex glove, my foot looked like that. My tongue even felt heavy and swollen, like thick in my mouth. And my mind felt dull and achy and foggy. And it was hard to put coherent words together. I felt cloudy. I felt sleepy. 
small frustrations magnified into bigger ones. It was very difficult to maintain perspective. So every tiny problem I had, even something kind of dumb was magnified into this grand issue that like my life is never going to be right again. Um, my muscles were aching, especially my back, my joints throbbing slightly. And they also felt stiff and, and kind of creaky and cracky. And I know that this feeling is transient, that I don't always feel like this. And that's something important because I think if we never experience what it's like to not have a lot of inflammation, then it's really hard to identify what, what we feel like when we are inflamed, right? It's this idea of like the signal and the noise. So if your background noise is chronic inflammation, it kind of becomes your normal and life is just kind of shitty. Excuse my French. Life is just kind of shitty. Like imagine just feeling like that all the time and not really realizing that you could feel better, that the fog could clear, that your body could feel lighter and limber and, and more mobile and that your mood could be brighter and more optimistic. Now, the reason I was feeling this way, like the first few days of the menstrual cycle are characterized by an increase in prostaglandins. So these are sort of inflammatory molecules that stimulate menstrual flow. So many women or people that menstruate experience an aggravation in inflammatory symptoms like depression or even arthritis or even autoimmune conditions premenstrually or on the first couple of days of their cycle. You might get migraines, you might get um, you know, definitely swelling and water retention, even weight gain. You might get a cold sore outbreak. I've had patients who get strep throat right before their periods. Their like immune system sort of gets messed up a little bit around that time. And the phenomenon it can be exaggerated with heavy, humid weather, right? So that just tends to cause more water retention, more swelling. And then obviously that's going to be worsened if you're already dealing with chronic inflammation, sort of like the signal and the noise. If there's a lot of background inflammation in your body, and then now there's more inflammation due to your menstrual cycle, you're just going to feel like just way more bogged down and inflamed. And in my case, I was healing a broken bone. So this, this menstrual cycle was occurring against the background of six weeks of inflammation, very important and healthy inflammation as my body's trying to send resources to my right foot to try and get the bone to heal and the soft tissues around it to heal. So inflammation, it's our body's beautiful healing process. So inflammation brings water, nutrients, and immune cells to an area of injury or attack. The area involves swells, it heats up, it becomes red, and it may radiate pain. In Latin, we call this tumor, rubor, calor, and dolor. <laughs> it's very similar to Spanish is why I remember it. And then, so after this injury or attack, within a matter of days, weeks, or even months, the pathogen, like the virus or bacteria, is neutralized, or the wound heals, and then the inflammatory process turns off, kind of like a switch. And the body says, okay, we don't need to be inflamed anymore. Now we're good. But the problem is when inflammation is low-grade and chronic, right? When it becomes the background noise against which we live the soundtrack to like our life's movie. 
And, th- and that's, you know, many chronic health conditions and it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, but many of them are inflammatory and have inflammatory root causes. So diabetes, arthritis, chronic PMS or PMDD, so premenstrual syndrome or premenstrual dysphoria disorder, something I'm seeing a lot of in my practice. This is like where you become um, non-functional week before your period, lots of, uh, and, and, and usually one or more physical symptoms as well. Depression, anxiety, migraines, bowel and digestive issues, many of them, all of those have an inflammatory component. So I tell my patients, you know, inflammation, think of inflammation as everything that makes your body feel bad. And this is because your body, when it's inflamed, is trying to heal something. It's trying, so something wrong, there's something wrong happening, right? Your body is under attack or it's wounded or so it thinks. And your immune system is trying to get that thing to heal. Okay, so it makes sense if you feel bad if everything feels bad, if you feel sore, if you feel tired, if your mood is kind of crappy, if you want to retreat, stay inside, kind of avoid life, not deal with extra problems and extra things and extra projects. It makes sense. The inflammation makes us feel crappy, right? It makes sense that I'm not like super excited and and gung-ho about life if I've broken my foot and that I naturally want to retreat, watch movies, sit with my foot up and just give everything a break and let my body focus on healing. But it's also important to think, okay, so anti-inflammatory practices or things that help us resolve chronic inflammation make us feel good. So having healed my bone or you know, foods that calm inflammation, teach our nervous or our immune system that there's nothing to fight, that everything's cool, herbs that help clear infection and et cetera. These all make us feel good. They clear up the fog. They make us feel energized, happy, healthy, light. And I don't mean light in terms of weight on the scale, but just that feeling of like lightness and energy and grace and movement in the body that we all like, this energy that we feel. And many of us are used to low-grade inflammation as the norm, as I've said, as this background noise in life. And maybe we have this vague sense of things could be better. And patients may, like they might, their main concern may be like mood, like depression, anxiety, like an actual diagnosis, or they might just feel like I don't have energy. I just don't feel as good as I feel like I should. Like, why do I just not feel great? And maybe they have a time in their life that they're looking back on where they were like, you know, things were going well, they felt motivated, they were going to the gym, they felt strong physically, they felt optimistic mentally. And they're like, I'm just not feeling like that right now. Something's off, right? So we feel like we could have more energy, more lightness of being in body, feeling more uplifted, optimistic, clearer thinking and cognitive function, that sharp, quick wit and mind, better focus, less, less stiffness and less swelling better athletic performance. So we know that obesity and weight gain are likely inflammatory processes. And this is something I I always talk about because a big mistake that we've made throughout the years or decades has been to blame obesity and weight gain solely on calories. And I find that in 99% of my patients, there's an underlying inflammatory process occurring. And that's what is 
potentially causing insulin resistance or hormonal imbalances, but also causing the body to hold onto weight. And that weight may not even be fat tissue. It might be water. We hold on to a lot of water, right? Like remember two more swelling. We hold on to a lot of water when we're chronically inflamed and that can reflect large changes on the scale and large changes in how your body feels. Like think about when you have PMS, like I've gained seven pounds from one day to the next, <laughs> gained and lost seven pounds from one day to the next when I was expecting my period. Insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome are also inflammatory in nature. And it's like I said, it's hard to distinguish uh, chronic swelling and water retention and actual fat gain. And the two can also be closely intertwined. And the, the problem with inflammation is that when it starts to cause chronic disease, that chronic disease keeps us in an inflammatory state. When things start to go wrong, our body keeps trying to heal, possibly involving the immune system. And we get this chronic inflammation. So just an aside here, but it's unfortunate that weight loss is prescribed as a treatment for things like hormonal imbalances or other conditions caused by metabolic imbalance, right? So when I have patients who have underlying insulin resistance, and that may be contributing to another condition like a hormonal imbalance, like in the case of polycystic ovarian syndrome, like infertility or arthritis and, or depression. And these patients are told to lose weight. It, it doesn't quite make sense because it's very difficult to lose weight when you're inflamed and when you're insulin resistant, if you're not actually addressing that level of the problem, right? because most people, when they hear lose weight, think eat less, exercise more. And that might not solve the, inflam the inflammatory problem. We've got to figure out why inflammation is occurring. And not only has this patient probably made several attempts to lose weight, and, and you know, the unwanted weight gain is likely a symptom rather than a cause of the chronic health complaint. So we've got to learn how to get to the root of that. And, and that's why I created this course, UA Less on the Moon. It's both to kind of eradicate diet culture and then to actually learn the underlying cause of metabolic dysfunction. It doesn't matter what weight you are. It matters how you feel. If you have underlying metabolic dysfunction, you might be attributing this feeling of like, like we talk about like fat is not a feeling, like I feel fat, like well, fat is not a feeling. Like maybe it's a, it's a, it's a word you're using to describe this malaise that you're experiencing, maybe chronic inflammation and metabolic dysfunction. And so here's how to solve it. Here's a couple of things to focus in on, right? It's like pulling the, the, the splinter out of your foot, right? Rather than taking Advil to fix like there's a pain in my foot. I'm going to take some Advil. Let's actually like look at your foot, pull out the the nail or the splinter that's causing the pain. So check out that course. You weigh less on the moon. It's in my um, it's in my online courses. Uh, Learn.goodmoodproject.ca. So in this case, you know both the main complaint, like the migraines, the PMS, the endometriosis. Another common common condition that I'm seeing common in my practice. You know, and very undiagnosed. A lot of uh, women have bowel issues, maybe anxiety, and very painful periods. That and the painful periods were addressed usually with birth control pill, which is not quite a solution. But and now these other conditions are still continuing on and getting worse over the years, and they haven't connected it. And endometriosis is difficult to diagnose. It's diagnosed with laparoscopic surgery officially, and that's not something you really do unless you know you have endometriosis. So there's a bit of a catch 22 when it comes to diagnosing it difficult to see an ultrasound but if you have very painful periods 
And then you have some bowel involvement and some mental health involvement in your symptom picture. And you feel like those are three separate issues. They very likely could be linked. And there are specific treatments, nutrients, things to assess and to look at that we can do as naturopaths without the official diagnosis that is quite invasive. You know, the, the depression, the arthritis, all these conditions, you know, and weight gain are likely all due to an inflammatory process occurring in the body. This is why, you know, depression has the, the obvious symptoms, right? Like, you know, the changes in appetite, the changes in sleep, the low energy, the, the lack, the anhedonia, right? The lack of pleasure interest in things you once took pleasure in, can't get out of bed, that whole thing, like that, that pretty typical low mood, everything's kind of gray and dark. But then there's also these other weird symptoms, right? Like back pain, digestive issues, dizziness, um, and all of these other things are, are potentially, you know, related to the inflammation. And so when we try and treat one of these symptoms, like let's say you're trying to just treat weight gain, you know, because you think, okay, maybe that will help. Well, that may aggravate the inflammatory process depending on how it's done. Like if you're already very stressed out and you're trying to go train for a marathon or go running, that may just exacerbate this cortisol resistance that may be occurring that's causing inflammation or cutting calories or intermittent fasting or skipping breakfast, or, you know, you, you may still be consuming foods that are contributing to inflammation, maybe in your specific case, but now you're just eating less of those foods and that's creating stress on your body because now your body's in a, a calorie deficit, which is quite stressful. So these things may actually worsen the underlying state and, and they do nothing to actually relieve the root cause of the issues at hand. Which, and so it's really important to, if inflammation is going on, really assess what is at the root of it. Where is it coming from? So even anti-inflammatory or over-the-counter medications. So we have Advil. We have uh, more sort of like prescription-ish ones like naproxen. And then we have supplements like turmeric you know, curcumin, they can have limiting effects. So they work wonderfully, these, these things, if the inflammation is self-limiting, which means it's just going to occur for a couple of days and then it's going to go away, right? Like a migraine, I'll take Advil any day for a migraine just to kind of get back to work. Or if I have a sore throat, you know, something that I just need, you know, I can't maybe afford to take the day off, period cramp, something like that. And I know it's going to go away, but when it's more chronic conditions where the inflammation's background, Advil's not the solution because there's something driving the inflammation. So think of it as like taking Advil for pain in your foot when you've just stepped on a nail. So maybe that's helpful if you're going to deal with the nail later. But if you're just like, well, I don't know, there's pain in my foot, I'm going to take Advil for this, or even curcumin, I'm going to do the natural thing and take curcumin for this pain in my foot. The, the, the body is just going to trigger more. It's going to mount more of an inflammatory response because the inflammatory response is there for a reason. And that reason is the nail in your foot. So our goal is to understand like, why is inflammation occurring, right? These, these things, you know, um, like Advil or curcumin, they, again, like they're helpful when things are self-limiting. So a day or two of terrible pain, cramps or migraine headache, but they don't resolve chronic low-grade inflammation. 
And if anything, they only temporarily suppress it. And then the inflammation comes back with a vengeance because your body is trying to keep this inflammatory response going. There's some sort of immune activation happening and there's a reason for it that we need to discover or uncover. So if you if we can't find that nail, that proverbial nail in your foot causing pain, then perhaps we need to apply a general anti-inflammatory lifestyle. And a good place to start is with the gut. And I also really like to address stress because cortisol, our stress hormone, is an anti-inflammatory hormone. So Gabor Mate said this wonderful piece in his documentary, The Wisdom of Trauma. He said, you know, what are the, the drugs that we use for asthma? You take a corticosteroid inhaler. When you have a skin infection, what do you use? You use a steroid cream. When you have arthritis, what do you take? You take a steroidal medication. It's like, so we're taking steroids, corticosteroids for like every condition. And what are steroids? They're analogs to cortisol. It's sort of like a chemical version of cortisol, which is what? Our stress hormone. So maybe stress has something to do with these inflammatory conditions. <laughs> and he's like a brilliant man. It's a great documentary you should watch. Um where he digs into trauma as a cause of underlying chronic stress, which is then leading to chronic inflammation, which is then leading to these chronic health conditions like depression, anxiety. He's studying more addiction as his interest. So yeah, cortisol suppresses inflammation. The problem is that if our cortisol, just like, you know, you, you can have insulin resistance. If our cortisol is jacked up, ongoing for long periods of time. And it's unclear how long, but everyone's a little bit different. Some people can survive in that sort of type A, go, go, go state for months, years. And other people like me maybe can handle it for a week or two. And then I crash. And you kind of, maybe you, you know yourself and what you can handle. How long can you tread water for? When our cortisol is jacked up for long periods of time, eventually our brain stops responding to it. And we start to experience cortisol deficiency symptoms, even though we are still making large amounts of cortisol. So we have all this stress hormone flooded in our bodies. Our brain's not responding to it. And we start to get this, this inflammation, right? So the cortisol is no longer suppressing inflammation. Now, this is a chicken and egg thing, because if you have a lot of chronic inflammation in your body, that calls on cortisol to try and manage the inflammation. So having chronic inflammation, like having that piece of glass or that nail in your foot, is stressful. And you know this, one of my colleagues, um, Dave Miller, and you can listen to this in our podcast that we did together. We did a couple, but there's one where he, he comes on as the gut gangsta and he talks about um, gut health and mood. He says this, and I always repeat this to my patients because I love it. You know, he's like, where we're talking about gastritis, which is a inflammatory condition in your stomach. And he, he always looks at that and, he's, and he looks at someone with gastritis and chronic stress. And he says, you know, your vagus nerve, the nerve that goes from your stomach to your brain is, is, is signaling this danger, this issue, this, this inflammation that's occurring in the stomach. And it's sending these signals to your brain being like fire, fire, fire. It's like a smoke alarm going off constantly. Come deal with this inflammation. Come heal this thing. Your brain is getting these signals. And then from your environment, maybe you're getting the regular stressful signals of life. Like maybe you've got relationship problems. Maybe you've got financial problems. Maybe work is stressful. Maybe, you know, like your boss, um, maybe you hate where you live and you've got these chronic problems of everyday life. And you've also got gastritis. And so 
Dave says, he goes, maybe I can't fix your marriage problems, but I can fix your gut (laughs) inflammation. And that will take a massive load off the stress pile that you've got on your back. And I really love that. And, uh, you know, we do do counseling and we can, you know, help with marriage problems potentially, or help refer to someone that can, and it's important to deal with, but you know, how much is chronic inflammation making our life problems worse because it's decreasing our bandwidth to actually handle and make decisions and be able to cognitively process these issues and come up with solutions for them. It's oppressing our brain's ability to make new neural connections, et cetera, et cetera. And so we want to look at, you know, um, gut health as well, because the gut is where 70% of our immune system lies. And there's definitely, there's definitely this, this connection between gut health and, uh, chronic inflammation, mental health conditions, the gut-brain connection, the, the microbes in our gut. And there's a whole ecosystem down there that we should be examining. It was a really interesting article called Bread and Other Edible Agents of Mental Disease that was published in the Frontiers in Human Neuroscience in 2016. And this talks about how gliadin, the, which is gluten, essentially, the protein in, in wheat, rye, and barley can cause something called leaky gut or intestinal permeability. This is something really important to look at and consider if you deal with anxiety or depression. And it may not just be bread. There could be other foods that are causing this inflammation that's causing this leaky gut. And that creates systemic whole body inflammation. So the tight junctions, the space between the cells in our gut lining open up and allow whole proteins to enter into into the bloodstream even cross the blood-brain barrier and create this chronic immune activation, inflammation, and mental health symptoms. The other thing the paper points out is that there is this phenomenon where the, the bread itself, and this is also true of dairy, releases opioid-like compounds, which can affect our mood and how we feel. So it gives us a sort of drug-like effect. And so they recommend a grain-free diet. And now this is something to consider, but I do have a food sensitivity course as well to check out. If you're interested in looking at that and exploring that as a underlying cause of chronic inflammation. And if you've, and now the thing with gut, gut health is that we don't always get symptoms of gut inflammation. Like it's really hard to tell the, the state of your intestinal lining. And sometimes the only symptoms we have are these systemic or whole body inflammatory symptoms. You may not feel bloated or constipated or have diarrhea or have stomach pain. You might, but really the the pain receptors in our gut are related to stretch. So unless people have gas, I don't typically see a lot of symptoms of leaky gut that people feel in the gut. So far too many of my patients that that have leaky gut and chronic inflammation don't really have a lot of gut symptoms. So if you do, it's inter- it's really important, I would say, to consider you know the, the gut-brain connection in your treatment plan or your strategy to, to deal with your mental health conditions. But even if you don't, it may be worth exploring gut health and the role food may play. And, uh, and so I do have a nutrition and mental health course, and there's going to be some, um, some, some announcements around that 
coming up soon, but I also have a food sensitivity course and I think it's just $27. I'd highly recommend it. It also talks about some, this remarkable famous case study um, of a professor and his daughter who stopped eating basically all potentially inflammatory foods and and completely cleared up their depression and, and autoimmune conditions. And it sort of solidifies or gives credence to this hypothesis that maybe depression is just a result of an autoimmune condition or some sort of undiagnosed autoimmune condition in the brain. So when we're talking nutrition, nutrition is at once a complex, confusing, and contradictory science, and then at the same time, a very simple endeavor. (laughs) Think about, you know, take yourself back to hundreds of thousands of years ago. Nutrition was the simplest thing ever for our human ancestors. We simply ate whatever we found that tasted good. We, and this meant we ate meat, we ate fish, we ate sort of all the parts of the animals. We ate ripe fruit and vegetables and other plant matter that we could break down easily with minimal processing. And that's about it. We didn't eat red dye number three or artificial sweeteners, or heavily modified grains sprayed with glyphosate, and heavily processed flours that need to be milled and pulverized with mechanical tools that weren't available to us hundreds of thousands of years ago. We didn't consume seed oils that require several steps of solvent extraction, deodorization, and whatnot. We didn't eat modified corn products or high fructose corn syrup or carbonated drinks that are artificially colored and taste like chemicals. We didn't eat natural flavors, which are not natural at all. Um, We knew our food. We knew it intimately because it was either grown, raised, or hunted by us personally or by someone we knew very well. And we knew where it came from. And now we have absolutely no clue. (laughs) Although there is this movement, first a regenerative agriculture, which I am so into, but also this movement to know your food more. And I think it's wonderful. The trick is figuring out how to keep living our lives with all the things we got going on and not become totally obsessed by our food and then have this this sort of healthy balance where we know that we're being nourished, that we're living a little bit more closely, closer to nature, I think. Um, but this onslaught of random foodstuffs can wreak havoc on our systems over time. Our bodies are resilient and you probably know someone who apparently thrives on this diet full of random edible food-like products. I love this term from Michael Pollan in the omnivores dilemma. You know, these people who've never touched a vegetable, they eat waffles for lunch and they seemingly look okay. And I would argue that, you know, our body, it, you know, we can handle toxicity, right? It's like you had these these kings that would teach themselves how to tolerate arsenic so they couldn't be poisoned back in medieval times. So yeah, you can tolerate a certain amount of toxins and poisons and your body can figure out places to put it and hide it. But I wonder how healthy we could ever be if we're if we're dedicating so much of our body's energy to clearing out these and processing these things that aren't food how many nutrients we're missing out on both from our food but also nutrients that we're wasting to process the food like we know that white sugar requires extra magnesium to process and so it depletes our magnesium which is already potentially low cuz we're not eating foods 
typically that are very high in magnesium. Our soil quality is not magnesium rich anymore and so on. You know, our bodies, um, we, we have the capacity to heal and to live without optimal nutrition, regular meals that nourish us and heal us rather than impose another adversity to overcome, right? Like this toxin to clear. But these, this lifestyle can diminish um, or sorry, our capacity to heal and, and live without optimal nutrition can, can diminish when we start adding in these environmental chemicals and toxins, mental and emotional stress, lack of sleep, invasion of blue light all hours of the day, bodies that are prevented from experiencing their full range of motion and so on. So although nutrition is extremely important and I found it, it this really important pivotal thing because it it's so pervasive in our lives that I find that when people make meaningful to them changes in their nutrition, which, you know, all of the diets that work, work because they're anti-inflammatory and nutrient dense. And so you've got to make sure that that's part of it. Like if you're going to go vegan, it's got to be anti-inflammatory vegan and nutrient dense vegan. That may be different for one vegan to the next. If you're going to go animal-based, same thing. I find animal-based um, sort of like a paleo type diet, just a little bit better for most people. Um, but there are ethical reasons why someone maybe want to might want to be vegan. And so as long as it's anti-inflammatory and nutrient dense, that's a meaningful dietary change. And so whatever meaningful change someone wants to do, I believe because it's so, such a big shift in somebody's lifestyle that it has this extra power. Like it encourages us to move a little bit more, right? To drink more water, to consider the source of our water. And then because we're reducing inflammation by making this huge change, because diet and food is such a, you know, a potential source of inflammation, that we start to reduce that background noise that we talked about. We start to feel less inflammation and we, we start to feel differently. And that creates a different pattern in our brain and, and in the way we relate to our bodies in the world. And so this can be very powerful. Um, So ultimately, what I'm trying to say is that to reduce inflammation, we have to start living more naturally. We need to re, um, reduce the inflammation in our environments, and we need to put ourselves against a more natural backdrop. And something like going for a soothing walk in nature at least once a week, and there's a lot of research on this. Um, we need to be more in nature. Our food needs to be more natural. Our bodies need to be in more natural environments. We need to eat natural foods. Eat meats that are naturally, sustainably raised and regeneratively farmed. Um, you know, fruits and vegetables that are organic or that you get from a farmer's market. Cook your own grains and legumes. So that means, in, in essence, process your food yourself. Avoid random ingredients. So take a look at your oat and almond milk, right? So a lot of people like, okay, I'm, I'm drinking oat milk. And that might be good. There may be some reasons why you might decide to do that. Maybe you are trying to cut out dairy because you want to explore that as a potential source of inflammation in your body. But I want you to look at your oat milk. Look at those ingredients. And do they look natural and healthy to you? Can you pronounce all the ingredients in those foods? Can you guess what plant or animal each of those ingredients came from? 
So for example, have you ever seen a carrageenan tree and take a look at your almond milk? And I would try and make sure there's no carrageenan in there, especially if you have gut issues. So moving to a more natural diet can be hard, right? Sometimes you immediately feel results. I've had patients that like wake up the next morning after an anti-inflammatory day where they've been eating their like fresh meat, fish, poultry, fruit and vegetables, maybe whole grains, and they feel amazing. Sometimes it's our partners or our parents that notice a change in us before we notice it in ourselves, right? Like my, one of my good friends will try and convince her partner that every time he has gluten and sugar, he's snappier the next day. He's more likely to have sort of this meltdown or freak out. His ADHD goes haywire. It's difficult when you're in that state, right? You got other things to think about rather than like being in your body. And so sometimes other people may point it out or notice it before you do. And maybe that's important to pay attention to. And it's also important to pay attention to the patterns because you may not notice it, you know, every one-off situation, but over time you want to pay attention to like, what happens after I eat gluten, let's say, you know, what do I feel in my body? How significant is it? How long does it last for, et cetera? To change your diet, you know, usually involves um, making a plan. So grocery shopping, making a list of foods you're going to eat and maybe foods you're not going to eat, coming up with some recipes that are tried and true that you just do kind of on autopilot, things your kids like to eat, things that kind of work for the whole family. You probably got to get your family on board for this. And for that, check out Nicholas Hundley's episode with, with me on the Good Mood Podcast. He talks about sort of inspiring your family and the importance of getting your kids to eat. And proper food too. You know, you might have to develop some systems for the rush nights and takeouts and snacks and patients. Like when someone's got hockey and someone's got drama class and someone's got soccer all on the same night and something's at five, something's at six and something's at seven. How are you eating when you used to just grab a pizza? Like, what are you doing now? And one of my colleagues, uh, Jordan Robertson talks about how we like to, you know, we'll try something. We'll be like, okay, let me try, you know, pre-packing lunches for the week. And the first time you do it, it's going to suck. You're not going to be good at it. You're not going to know what containers to use. You're not going to know how long to boil the eggs for, or the broccoli is going to be like gross smelling like fart by, by Friday. And there's like a really hilarious Baroness Vaughn sketch on CBC about this, where she's eating her gross soup that she prepacked and everyone else is going out for pizza and sushi. Like you're not going to be good at it the first time. And so don't use the first time you're trying to create a new system to, to be the feedback of whether your system's working. You got to get better at it. And then it just becomes second nature. And then it's not a problem anymore. You know, Um, like in, in my case, like I was saying, I don't consider pizza an option and it's, it's totally fine. It's, you know, it's, and it's not because pizza is inherently evil. It's just, it doesn't work for my body. It doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't help me um, on the road to what I define as health for myself. And so when I need to grab something quick, I have some options available to me. I kind of know in the fast food world, like what I can eat, what doesn't affect me too badly and what I can grab in a drive-through if I really need to. And then I have some other strategies to prevent myself from needing drive-throughs. And this has all just been tested and, and tried and true over time. 
uh, it takes patience, you know, it takes, uh, it, it takes practice and often, you know, you put in a lot of effort and you don't necessarily feel better right away. Right. It's sometimes it takes inflammation a while to resolve and it takes the gut time to heal. I was doing a series of fasting back in 2017 and I have this experience that I'll never forget of what it was like to fast for 24 hours and feel like all my inflammation just drain away. And I don't necessarily think that everybody needs to fast for 24 hours. It's pretty tough. And it took um, a lot of preparation and planning to do it, to make sure I wasn't dehydrating myself or um, getting salt deficiency, but to really feel what it was like to not be inflamed was such an important experience. And it took 24 hours of no food. If there's something that you're trying to heal from, it may take longer and you might not have that deep, like release feeling. I noticed that a lot of my patients are, you know, potentially addicted to certain chemicals or ingredients in processed foods. And so this is one phenomenon I've noticed that I mentioned in an Instagram and Instagram TV video. Um, so often, you know, the, the pain and inflammation that somebody's suffering from in their gut, the, the opioid-like products from the bread or even the chemicals in food are triggering potentially this, um, this opioid-like drug-like response. And so the, 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 the pleasure chemicals you get from the addiction may override the pain of inflammation. And so you're going through this with, withdrawal process at the same time as you're trying to heal that can be really difficult. And I find that that's often one of the reasons why people will slide back, even if an anti-inflammatory um, lifestyle or diet is working for them. So it can be really tempting to go back to the chemicals that help numb the pain of inflammation you're experiencing and deliver that dopamine hit or that endorphin hit. Um, but it, so it's, it might be helpful to remember your why, like, why am I doing this? How do I want to feel? Put it on the fridge beside your favorite smoothie recipe. And aside from diets, you can check out, you know, my food sensitivities course, you can check out the nutrition mental health course on the, the good mood project website. So it's learn.goodmoodproject.ca. We also need sleep and we need darkness. We need to support our circadian rhythms. This is a new thing. This is something I've been talking about for a few years, but this is something that like everyone's talking about now. So you got to get your bedroom 100% dark at nighttime that you can't see in front of your face dark, right? This is what we were used to in the natural world. Very bright daytime and pitch dark nighttime. And we're not getting that, right? We're inside with sort of dim lighting during the day. And then we're inside with dim lighting at nighttime. And then we go, we try and go to sleep with electronics, blaring blue light on our faces, so try and, you know, if you can't get your bedroom that dark, wear an eye mask in front of your face and give your body enough time to sleep properly. So less than seven hours isn't enough. And uh, sometimes patients are like, well, I'm, I can get by on six, but we need sleep because sleep is anti-inflammatory. It's where our brain repairs, makes new neural connections, our immune system sorts itself out. Melatonin is such an important anti-inflammatory antioxidant as well as a hormone it's involved in uh, it's something else I'll recommend as a supplement for autoimmune conditions but if you can get natural melatonin from deep darkness and proper sleep that's even better it's also important to note that a lot of biohacking practices biohacking is like 
sleep masks and blue light blockers and that there's like blue light devices that go in your ears and there's like these circadian rhythm whatevers and rings that tell you about your heart rate variability all these things are really just trying it's like trying to replace nature right like if you just lived on the beach in costa rica you would get all this stuff for free so it's important to you know maybe go and sit and watch the sunset as often as you can because the light from the sunset stimulates melatonin um the red light and you know rather than change you can change the red li- like the the lights in your house to be red lights and that's also helpful especially if you have kids that won't go to bed but what if you just watch a sunset uh you know watch the stars expose yourself to darkness to the night sky as we would have done for hundreds of thousands of years we also need to move our body in all sorts of ways right not just like necessarily like 2D like walk or run or elliptical or bike but like dancing swimming moving in three dimensions yoga to experience the full range of motion of your joints like is really interesting i was getting back into yoga after breaking my foot and i i was able to understand what my body couldn't couldn't do through the process of getting back into yoga like i couldn't bend my foot a certain way i couldn't put my knee on the ground um and i wouldn't have discovered that if i, if I was just walking you know so getting my full range of motion getting my balance back getting my flexibility and strength back yoga helped me see that so i'm a huge proponent of yoga but it could be other like jujitsu there's all these like animal movement things i'm being advertised on instagram these functional range of motion functional movement sort of modalities practice a sport that requires your body and mind to coordinate that challenges your skills and your physical coordination learn balance in both your body and in your mind movement you know supports this chemical in the brain called brain derived neurotropic factor there's also glial derived neurotropic factor too it's sort of like miracle grow for brain cells so these are factors growth factors that support like cha- meaningful changes in the brain and that could include like ma- making more brain cells new brain cells and new brain connections and it's very anti-inflammatory very mood enhancing and and very important for our mental health like our the reason that we have brains is so that we can move right there there's this mollusk i was ta- i talked about this in my uh, good mood foundations course there's this mollusk that like will swim around until it finds its resting place which is like a rock or something and then it it latches onto that rock and then it d- digests its brain because what's the point of wasting energy to support a brain and nervous system if you're just going to stay stuck to a rock we move so we can hunt and we can escape predators and so we can move and we can interact with our environment that's why we have brains we need to manage our emotional life to manage inflammation so we need to actually feel our stress feeling our emotions paying attention to the body sensations that arise in our bodies What does hunger feel like? If you know what hunger feels like, so you're able to respond to hunger appropriately. What does the need for a bowel movement feel like? And this is like a weird question, but it's something that happens like a lot of chronic constipation comes from bowel movement suppression, like suppressing the urge to poop. How does thirst arise in your body? Can you recognize these physical sensations? And what about your emotions? There's a theory that um you know emotions occur as physical sensations in the body 
emotions do have a have sensations often that go with them. Like what does anger produce in your body in terms of sensation? Can you feel anxiety build? And what do you do with these emotions once they arise? Are you afraid of them? Do you try and push them down? Or do you let them arise? And what we in the what Rumi in his poem, The Guest House, says, do you meet them at the door laughing? Let them flow through you. The last episode I released, the 90 seconds to emotional resilience. Um, is goes into this in a lot more depth, and it's um, the it's a review of a really great book called Ninety Seconds to a Life You Love by Joan Rosenberg. So to practice this journaling, meditation, mindfulness, hypnosis, breath work, art therapy, etc., they can all be helpful tools for understanding the emotional life and understanding the role of chronic stress. You know how stress rises in your body, builds and falls, and toxic thoughts play in perpetuating inflammation. So this piece is related to that cortisol resilience that we talked about. So cortisol is super important hormone for mental health. And a psychiatrist called Charles Rayson, he talks about this, there's a glucocorticoid signaling hypothesis in depression that he he finds that like with depression, there seems to be high cortisol, like we talked about earlier on this podcast, high cortisol, high stress hormone, but low cortisol signaling. This cortisol resistance that causes inflammation and that dizziness, the weakness, low motivation, uh, I can't get out of bed. It's almost like a sickness response, which ultimately is what depression is, it's a sickness response. Now, detox, I want to talk about. And detox is a word that's kind of bad rap, but it is like an actual word that is what your liver and kidneys do all day long. They're filtering and they're detoxing. They're cleansing the blood of toxins. And a toxin is something that we can't use and that, you know, we have to get rid of in our bodies. And by detox, I don't mean go on some weird cleanse where you're pooping and you're drinking like cayenne pepper water or whatever, like some teas or whatever stuff that gives you diarrhea. That's not what I mean. What I mean is remove the gunk and clutter (laughs) from your physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional plumbing. Like my, um, my drain got clogged a few weeks ago and then the pipe burst. And so I had to replace some of the plumbing in my kitchen sink. And I was like, you know, plumbing is just digestion. (laughs) It's your house's digestive system. And my pipes are full of gunk. So what does detox look like for you? It might be like a tech break. It might be going off into the woods for a weekend, just clearing your environment of noise and chaos. It might be spending an hour in silence or meditation, closing your eyes and watching your breath. It might be just eating animals and plants for a couple of months, cutting out alcohol or coffee or processed food for a time. This idea of removing the some sources of, of chemicals or of toxins in your environment, right? So there's this thing that, that kind of goes around where people are like, oh, you're, you you're always detoxing. You don't need to detox because your liver does it for you. And that may be true, but the fact of the matter is that there are thousands more. We're exposed to thousands and thousands more chemicals and toxins in our environment, in our food than ever before. And so, yes, your liver is amazing at detoxifying things, 
but there's a, there's a large toxic burden on a lot of us. And we're also, you know, nutrient deficient. Nutrient deficiencies are pretty uh, rampant, pretty common. And your liver needs certain nutrients to be able to process toxins. And so it's like supporting your liver and your kidneys and your organs of detoxification on the one hand, giving them some support and also taking the burden off them. This is what I consider detoxing. Detoxing may involve cleaning your house with vinegar and detergents that are mostly natural ingredients. So like using only products you could eat on your skin and in your house, dumping fragrances for your cosmetics and cleaning products, storing your food in glass containers and steel rather than plastic. It might mean participating in a beach cleanup, cleaning up your neighborhood and environment. It might mean purging your closet. For me, cleaning up the chaos in my environment is so important. It is the needed thing for reducing inflammation in my body. Like it's this PMS thing I do. I need to like deep clean everything. It's really important. I think that's why Marie Kondoing and the minimalist movement gained so much popularity because our stuff can add extra gunk and complication to our mental, emotional, and spiritual lives. And so this like deep clean idea, this purging can, you know, I think there's this, um, this deep spiritual need for it that we have. And then finally, connecting with community is important. So loneliness is inflammatory. It's stressful. Social rejection occurs in the brain like physical pain. This past year and a half, or now we're like pushing two years, they've been very difficult, particularly for those of you who live alone, who are in transition, who aren't in the place you'd like to be, or who aren't living with the person or people you like to be who aren't currently with your soul family. And, and it takes work to find a soul family. I think the first steps are to connect and attune to oneself, to truly understand who you are and move towards that. And in that way, you can allow space for people to trickle in and they'll relate to you as your authentic self that you are now getting to know as well. Sometimes we feel loneliness because we are lonely for our own self-recognition and self-love. And I know that sounds very vague and annoying. <laughs> if you're if you're like I just want like a pack of friends, I don't want to hear that I need to like give myself love first or I just want a partner or whatever. I know that is a you know an annoying thing to hear. But I think that you know when we're at our most magnetic, we are often living most closely aligned with our values and our true authenticity. And sometimes just writing a list of your true authentic self, your values could be the 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 first steps in getting close to your in calling in your soul family. You know, we usually need to take care of ourselves first when we're lonely. You know, establishing boundaries and self-awareness we need to call in the people who will respect and inspire us the most. It's all about self-worth, I'm learning. Do you treat yourself as someone worthy of love and belonging? And maybe, you know, like I said, sometimes nutrition is the first step because it clears up, you know, nutrition and purging your space. It clears up the gunk from your life and it allows you to see like what's left. Who am I? You're removing these layers of inflammation, like we, we clear up, we free up space and energy in our bodies to address deeper layers of our feelings and body sensations. And 
we relieve the foggy heaviness of depression and toxic thoughts that might keep us feeling stuck. And thereby we start to call in more anti-inflammatory things in our lives, like people that help us quell stress and inflammation. And then it just, it just perpetuates things. We might start to, you know, once we clear up our bodies and minds and cool the fires of inflammation, we start to see better. The fog lifts. We start to think more clearly. We know who we are. Our cravings subside. We can begin to process our shame, our anger, and our sadness. We start to crave nourishing things versus things that aren't nourishing, like sugar or whatever it is. We actually start to crave walks in nature, quiet afternoons writing poetry, phone calls with friends, stewed apples with cinnamon for sweetness when we get a sugar craving. We free up our dopamine receptors for wholesome endeavors. And this is important because our dopamine receptors are being completely hijacked these days by what we call like spiritual Twinkies. My friend calls them this. He's like, you know, you, you want to connect with people. So you look on Instagram and you get yourself a Twinkie. You crave sugar, you know, maybe because you need some nutrients that are found in fruit and you eat a Twinkie and it's like zero nutrition. And it's this kind of thing where, um, you know, we're, we're scrolling Facebook rather than really connecting with somebody. And this is, you know, dopamine trying to get us to wholesome things, but because there's a non-wholesome thing offered up to us, that's even sweeter, even more exciting, but delivers none of the wholesomeness it sort of confuses the whole motivational process in our brains. And so when we free up our dopamine receptors, when we clear out that like extra sweet, extra addictive stuff, (laughs) we start to really feel excited by the pure things in life. In my experience, we move in the direction of our own authenticity. And I think this process will naturally attracts people to us and it naturally attracts us to the people who have the capacity and love to to love and accept us for who we are. We're no longer relating to people through our wounding. And I think that once we start to build community, people who are also embracing an anti-inflammatory lifestyle are trying to move in that direction or trying to live more closely to nature and care about nature in whatever way that shows up, whether that's, you know, living environmentally friendly lives or, interested in regenerative agriculture or walks in the woods where you forage for mushrooms or surf or whatever, when you get this anti-inflammatory community or people who are doing meditation, yoga, this non-toxic, nourishing, wholesome group of people that make your soul sing, the path actually becomes a lot easier because now temptation is not as prevalent. And the, um, you know, really we are social creatures and we want to belong to a community. We, we want to belong to a tribe. And when we are, you know, connected with people who, who, and, and we're, we're responsive to repetitive programming. So when you see somebody, you know, when every single person, you know, you know, has pizza for dinner, you know, two or three nights a week, or, um, you know, grabs a sandwich from the vending machine for lunch or smokes a cigarette or whatever, <laughs> you know, drinks four drinks after work and scrolls Instagram and watches Netflix. Um, that, that, that signals to our brain, that's normal. That's what our community is doing. But when you have a community that's like going to farmer's markets or cooking their own food, um, bringing their food for lunch, going for walks during lunch break, talking about nature and spending their weekends hiking, 
that becomes normal for you and that becomes expected and that becomes that starts to feel familiar and safe to you and and then it just becomes like a, a natural thing and it doesn't require this like willpower when you're surrounded by, by people who live life the way you do with respect for nature of which our bodies are a part, we are nature, who prioritize sleep, natural nutrition, mental health, movement, emotional expression, self-exploration, it becomes more natural to do these things. It becomes safe. It becomes normal. Your brain's like, yeah, that's how every, you know it should be. It no longer becomes a program or a plan or a process that you're in. It just becomes a way of life. Why would anyone do it any other way? And so the best way to overcome the toxicity of a sick society, because our society in many ways is, is nourishing, but in many ways is just not aligned with our natural tendencies and needs. And just, it can't fulfill our needs if we just, you know, follow society to tell us what to eat and how often to move and what to do. The remedy for this is to create a parallel society, to find people who are living the way that you want to live. And when you're surrounded by people who share your values, you no longer need to spend as much energy fighting cravings, going against the grain, succumbing to self-sabotage, feeling isolated if you stray from the herd and eat vegetables and go to sleep early, feeling like an outcast, like something's wrong with you. You actually now feel like you're part of a culture, a culture in which caring for yourself and living according to your nature is, well, natural. <laughs> There's nothing to push against or detox from. You can simply rest in healing because healing is the most natural thing there is. And that's where I'm trying to get my patients to. It's where I'm striving to get to. And so we started at like inflammation and we started and we ended up in this like alternate parallel hippie society. But the point is we got to look deeper. Like when we have epidemics and pandemics like we have with mental health conditions where we are now raising the most medicated and labeled generation in history. We have to ask ourselves, what is happening? So first of all, why are these conditions arising? What are the, what are the root causes of these conditions? And when we discover it's inflammation, we have to say, why is there so much inflammation? Why are people so inflamed? They're nutrient deficient. They're stre chronically stressed. They're deprived of natural sunlight and natural darkness and sleep and community and wholesome endeavors and three-dimensional movement and nature. Their dopamine receptors are completely saturated by, by the Twinkies, like spiritual, emotional, mental, and, and nutritional Twinkies. And it's tricky because the deeper we head in that direction, the, the harder it is to steer the ship and the harder it is to, to get back to more natural ways of life. But the good news is we don't have to completely go back because studies show that like a, a, an hour a week spent in nature has these anti-inflammatory benefits. And so it's not like you have to live in the woods. You just need to immerse yourself more in the woods. Wearing blue light blocking glasses could be helpful. Red lights in your house, you know, setting a bedtime alarm, using electronic electronics to your advantage, taking tech breaks, you know, finding ways to motivate yourself that don't rely on this like natural, like hijacking of dopamine and so on. And so, you know, that's the episode on inflammation. Thanks everyone for listening.